Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Have a wonderful guest in store today. Dr. Denise Gosnell joins the podcast. Let me give you a quick bio on her. Her career centers around her passion for examining, applying, and advocating for the applications of graph data. She has patented, built, published, and spoken on dozens of topics related to machine learning, graph theory, graph algorithms, and applications of graph data across all industry verticals. She earned her PhD in computer science from the University of Tennessee as an NSF fellow, and her research coined the concept social fingerprinting by by applying graph algorithms to predict user identity from social media interactions. And we talk a little about that topic today, as well as many others around data, how it relates to business, how it relates to just kind of the world and you know your observations and stuff like that. So loved this conversation so much. I'm excited for y'all to listen in. Let's jump right into it. Let's not waste any time. My interview today with Dr. Denise Gosnell. Let's get it started. Denise, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Looking forward to this. Well, I'm excited on a few different fronts. Um, one, because you're really the essence of what this podcast is about. Uh, not only are you going to blow my mind with a lot of your information on data in a, in a minute, but hopefully it'll help others, but it's just kind of the story of really a lot of these leap of faith opportunities um, that you've created through your life and went through. So I want to, I want to start with some of those and then we'll kind of get in because I, I think some of the things you're doing around data and, and how it's being used today could be really helpful for other businesses or gosh, even solopreneurs out there yeah. or what have you. So, um, start us off with this just so everyone as a, as kind of a framework, yeah. like the, the whole thing of like when someone asks you at a cocktail party, Hey Denise, what do you do? What, what's that? What's that 30 second uh, pitch to them? So uh, the, the answer to, hey, Denise, what do you do is uh, I, do, I do graph data. That's what I do. So I, I do data and then I do a specific type of data. And my favorite part about what I do is that it's a complete accident that I work with graph data uh, because I was getting into it, thinking, uh, getting into it because I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And uh, I thought graph data was about bar charts and uh, you know, pie graphs that type of data, like business analytics. And so I, I got into working with graph data thinking it was going to be uh, the study of, of business analytics. And within the first five minutes, uh, I realized this was about a completely different topic, which is the relationships in data or the links in data. And uh, once I realized there was a completely new way that people look at data by looking at the relationships between data, my mind has been hyper-focused on understanding it from a full mathematical perspective, but then also from a business, uh, from, from understanding how businesses can use this type of data. And it's just, it's just really taken off and I'm fascinated by it. Well, so we, that's a good overview. And before we jump into that, cause I, I want to layer in, cause I'm assuming back, you know, we were chatting before about, you know, kind of an upbringing with swimming and, mm-hmm. and those type of things. Did you, when, when did you start thinking about like, this could be a legit like life choice, if you will, to go down this path. I- I'm assuming that wasn't as a young kid or maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it-, it wasn't as a young kid. And um, I'm going to be honest, I don't really think I ever had that thought that was, hey, graph data is going to be my life path. Uh, but I kept uh, making choices and deciding to take risks. And it's just kind of happened. 
uh, to be a path that I've been on. Uh, but, but to your question about, you know, what was it like as a young kid, I, I've always been um, that person who loves computers and tinkering with computers. And I never really, when I was growing up, had um, a role model or friends that I could, you know, work on computers with or do different numbers things with. I've always been different or cut from a different cloth, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, it's, it's always been something that I loved. But growing up, I was way too worried to be, I was too concerned with being different. So I never really fully embodied uh, what my brain really loved to do, I think until grad school, really, like it was a long time that I kind of suppressed the fact that I really loved computers and working with data and working with numbers. I was more concerned with, you know, the more popular culture things to do. Uh, and, and once I finally just fully accepted that and have been pursuing my passions, it's been way more fun uh, to really be who I am. Now you'd mentioned also, and, and this is part of it, the, the competition, right? I'm sure there's part of that. So I, I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned swimming and yeah. being a competitive swimmer. I, tell me about that experience. I've had other folks on that have have done that, mm-hmm. and that's a a lot of work, right? It yes. almost equates to I have a lot of you know neighbors that have kids that do like dance or gymnastics like four days a week, and there's a lot of time commitment. Can you share a little bit about that? You know, kind of journey through uh, swimming and what that led to. Yeah, um, Brian, and that's that's a really that's a really great question, and. Swimming and my experience swimming uh, essentially formed my leadership style. And it gave me grit and resilience and uh, this desire to just get your hands dirty with the problem and to work alongside the people uh, that you're problem solving with. And, and that all honestly points back to 5.30 in the morning, uh, dipping your toe into ice cold water, water before you have to jump in. And just kind of pounding through yards uh, to to just perfect what it meant to be a swimmer. And and that entire experience, starting a little late for me at the age of twelve through uh, through college, I swam all the way through uh, all the way through college. Uh, that really has shaped what I do day to day within my role, uh, you know, at DataStax as their chief data officer. And how I like to lead, inspire others, and inspire others by you know getting alongside them and working through the problems when things feel really hard. That's what swimming taught me. Do you find I'm gonna, as I normally do, take like a big tangent for a second? But do you find it's because, and I've learned this. I was actually just finished the second. Um, I, I got the audio book, but the second time listening through with David Goggins, his book "Can't Hurt Me." I don't know if you ever if you've ever listened to that. It's phenomenal. no, I haven't, but I'm gonna add that to my list. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably the best book I've ever read from a standpoint of like motivation and inspiration, like what this guy went through, through his life and and what he's achieved. But the reason I ask that is because most people aren't going to wake up and put themselves in cold water and go swim that. So is it partly that not motivation, but to get people to understand like, Hey, there's some different levels that you could take here. You shouldn't be upset with this because you know, you should be able to take it two or three levels deeper. Mm -hmm. Um, just because of what, you know, the resiliency of humans is, is that a part of it? And from a leadership standpoint, cause I see that a lot in the organization I'm with, I'm curious if the same with you. Um, you know, I, I don't know, Brian, but that's, but that's a really good question. And when I, when I go think about what motivated me to push to that level, uh, it was that I really, I really wanted to understand and experience and be a part of the elite groups 
And, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a high school athlete, uh, at the time I was always striving to be a part of, uh, a part of the best of the best. And that group for me, uh, when I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, was where, um, you know, future Olympians like Davis Tarwater were training. And to me, that is, that was the group I wanted to be a part of. And if that meant that I had to be at the pool at five 30 in the morning, and then again, after school at three 30, uh, I just wanted to do it because I wanted to be along that ride and I wanted to understand what it took to become an elite athlete. And, uh, that has shaped my work ethic. Uh, it has shaped how I understand and look for, uh, similar, similarly motivated individuals because there's just a different, there's just something different that you learn being a part of that level of, um, athletic career on what it takes to, to reach your goals. And, uh, and the amount of work that you have to put behind it. And that, that really is what that taught me. But at the end of the day, it was just wanting to, wanting to learn what that felt like is why I did that and why I was a part of it. You know, one of the questions we always come back to is, is what childhood and upbringing. Do do you think that was part of how you were parented um, or the people you were around? Like I'm, again, maybe this is just me. I don't, you know, I don't believe in the, Hey, you were born with it type thing because Mm -hmm. I, I, how do you know it depends what you know generation you were born with or time period in light like but like did you have those certain things inside you that helped develop because of the you know the environment you're around I'm curious if you can share a little about that and maybe how that potentially did help you or see the light if you will um on some of those things that have helped you today yeah Brian that's that's a fascinating question and also something uh that I've recently realized that was different about me uh and that was the fact that I ever since I can remember starting at the age of six or seven, I've always been behind. And that has shaped everything about me. Um, so what do I mean by that? Uh, I was originally born in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And you, the cutoff date for joining, uh, you know, joining school uh, was November 1st. And I'm a late October birthday. Uh, so when I grew up, I, they put me in school. My parents put me in school as early as I could. And what happens is when we moved later, we moved into the South uh, and the cutoff date moved to September, but they, they, they really didn't want me to feel that pain as a young child of repeating school. Uh, so I went from being a normal aged kid to being almost a year younger than almost everyone else I worked with or was in school with growing up. And so what that taught me really early in first and second grade was that I was behind and I had to try harder to make sure I was on the level that everyone else was because I was different. I was younger and uh, I had to make sure that I really pushed myself so that I didn't have to have that experience. And I think that that core fabric, uh, that, that core part of my personality explains a lot as to, uh, explains a lot of why I push and, and why I, I have the resiliency I've built up because I'm always striving to uh, keep ahead or to keep with the pack because I've always been behind. <laughs> Did that help? Because you had mentioned about at the age of 17, I think it was kind of running your own organization. How the heck yes. did that happen at 17? How was that? How did that allow your parents allow you to do that? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, to me, it was the natural next step for what I was doing at the time. Um, so the way that came about was uh, I was uh, I was in a summer program, and as a part of the summer program, I, I joined at the age of 12. Uh, I was, you know, I was just an athlete and I was uh, participating on the team and, you know, starting at 14, I wanted to add a new part of the program. So I 
uh, I started a mentorship program for the wee little kids, the, the small, younger swimmers and athletes who were, you know, under the age of five and maybe weren't really ready for a full team. And so I started a mentorship program where the high school athletes would show up early and work with the younger kids. And I ran that for a few years. And uh, eventually we found that our team needed a new head coach. And uh, I put my name in the hat to start as the head coach of the program. And it was really small. Like we're talking 45 swimmers at the time. So people didn't, didn't have a hard time with a motivated high school athlete who was going to college, was going to be swimming in college uh, to take over a small program. Um, but after that, I wanted to build and win and be the best. So uh, we grew the program over the nine years I was coaching uh, as their head coach uh, to about 150 athletes. And uh, we, we got as high as fourth place uh, in the city of Knoxville uh, for competing when we started in the 30s. Um, so I was always recruiting, um, always looking for the best high school athletes. Uh, and, you know, we, we trained early in the summer. Uh, I had all of my high school athletes with me in the pool doing my college workouts while I was trying to keep up my own fitness. And so we had, uh, we had a crew of high school athletes who would join me in, over their summer vacation at 630 in the morning to do my college workouts before the other practices started. And we just, we just kind of had a culture of um, extremely motivated individuals who enjoyed working out together and, uh, and just doing something different. And that, that was, that was how I got started with, uh, with leading, uh, leading the team and, uh, the position I had for almost 10 years after that and how I built it. What is one of the more interesting, I'll, I'll say interesting because certainly there's probably basic stuff you learn that most people probably have learned, but the more interesting thing that you learned in that experience in terms of running a business that you were like mind blown when you figured it out. What a, one of the more interesting items about running a business at that time. Well, uh, when you're 17 and you take over a program, uh, it's, it starts with just keeping it running because uh, it was an existing program. And so at, at that point, I just was really wanting to make sure that we, uh, we kept things going and, and growing specifically. But the core, uh, one of the main lessons that I took away from that experience uh, was the importance of communication and communicating uh, honestly from the platinum rule perspective. Uh, and when I say platinum rule, I mean communicating in a way that others are going to uh, value that communication. And I always like to think from that perspective. If I'm a parent on this team, what do I want to know? If I'm a swimmer on this team, what do I want to know? And I, I always tried to frame the information and the development of the program from those perspectives uh, so that both uh, all of the parents, sponsors, and, uh, and, and different financial donors to the program were getting what they needed, but that also the swimmers felt like it was a valuable way to be spending their time because at the end of the day, your entire program is based on uh, uh, you know, high school and middle schoolers choosing to spend a few months of their year uh, toward driving towards a common mission, and that's not an easy sell. Uh, but, but I really focused on communication and uh, communicating in a way that the receiver wanted to have the information. I have to imagine there's a lot of similarity with what you're doing today with that, because, you know, when you're presenting with other, I don't know, PhDs, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can go very deep in the information and make it complex. And then when it's someone like a layman, like me that knows nothing, you have to uh, dumb it down like an a lot probably for me. 
Um, so I have to imagine it's similar, right, in terms of with graph data and data analysis and those type of things. Would, would, would you agree? Is that kind of how you have to relate it in your organization and beyond? Absolutely. Um, and Brian, I think you're one of the few individuals on the earth who gets it, <laughs> to be honest. So um, I love graph data because it takes that communication piece I just was talking about um, that was so core to uh, to how I enjoyed um, you know my younger years. It, it takes that communication piece and it, it brings it into data in a way that makes the most sense to the other person. And so when you're, when you're working with graph data, it's all about the relationships and data. And nowadays, uh, I bet you any one of your listeners on this podcast can think about the person in their network that told them about your podcast. And that's a relationship. And you like to relate everything you're doing in your day-to-day life according to your network, who you know, what they recommended to you. And the choice that you made is probably influenced because of that group of people. And not until the past, um, you know, 10 years of innovation in tech, did we have the ability to model that type of data in a computer. And that's, that's why these conversations are happening right now in the Silicon Valley and in the tech scene, because there's new innovation and there's new ways to actually do this. Um, so just think about something with me. Um, if you wanted to write out all of the friends of your friends and you were to do this like in Microsoft Excel, like you can imagine your first tab in Excel is all of your friends. And then you would need to maybe make a new tab where you pick your first friend and then you list all their friends. And then you need a new tab for your second friend's friends. And it's, it gets actually very difficult uh, to use rows and columns or a spreadsheet to write out who your friends are. And it's because it's the very nature of the question. The nature of the question is about relationships. And uh, not until recently did we have an efficient way to do that. And that's a, that's a part of the technology that I have uh, just followed because I think it's very interesting. But it's very, it's very key to how humans think. And that's why I find it to be uh, really interesting to study. Can you, ha- can you have too much data? I feel like people, that's their, that's their um, crutch, if you will, tr- when making decisions. You know, I hear this a lot from a sales standpoint and stuff is I want to make, and I'm putting, as you see, I'm putting my air quotes, right? I need yeah. to make better data, you know, informed decisions. It, it, do you feel that as a, as a crutch for a lot of people? I think, uh, I think too much data is uh, actually a signal. It's, it's something you can use to your advantage. And there's times when having too much data is useful and times when it's not. Um, when, you have, when you have too much data and maybe you're looking for something specific about an account or a sale you're working on, sifting through all that data can be really annoying. But from the business's perspective, having that much information about your accounts is a good signal towards the health of your business because you have too many to be dealing with. That's really good. Um, if you are, uh, if you are more security conscious and you're concerned about the data that's out there regarding your identity, the only solution is too much data because when there is too much information about people, uh, leaked out there uh, on the internet, it's going to be really hard to decipher one person. Uh, so it just depends on what you're trying to do on when uh, too much data could be a problem or actually useful. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess on that point, if I go a little bit deeper, cause I, like, you know, I think about, you can take anything nowadays, it seems like, right. Random, almost I'll call it random data and somehow find it intersect. 
And mm-hmm. that's how someone makes a decision. I, I don't know if where you see this or if you see this a lot with some of the different organizations you guys work with, but in terms of like, what's the right data and what's the, you know, like, how do you know if it's the right data? And again, I don't know enough about this. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. I know it's kind of, that's probably yeah. a simple question, but like, I get to imagine there's a lot of, you know, again, a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners I talk with, mm-hmm. it comes up a lot, not that specific question, but around like, how do I know what to like, how do I know what analytics to look at to make this decision to go down this direction versus another, you know? Yeah, yeah I do know. And, um, from my experience working, uh, you know, over the past 10 years as a data scientist, you know, in like quote unquote, the up and coming, uh, up and coming, uh, industry and job that is happening to me, the, it's not about the right data. It's, 100% of the time about asking the right question. And to me, that's the bridge that the industry is missing uh, because you have a lot of people who are getting skilled up on how to work with big data. Or uh, when I say big data, I just mean, you know, an amount of data that can't fit on your laptop. Um, when you're, you've got, you've got software engineers and people with coding skills who understand how to work with that data you have, um, you know, brilliant business-minded folks like yourselves who want to know interesting things, but we're really missing that middle bridge of people who can translate and understand the power of a good question and then map it down into the data you have in order to answer that question. So I think the, I think the art of what we need to be um, educating and, and pushing the industry towards is in the space of understanding strategy understanding, asking good questions, and then, you know, thinking one step further down of uh, the information that could empower that question and how to understand the strategy depending on the answer. That's the harder part um, and the more important part, in my opinion. So how do we do, I mean, I guess from an education standpoint, where is there certain resources out there you'd recommend people go to or listen to, like figure out, because I, I don't know if it's, like I've actually started recently on, on the, rec- not request, that's a wrong way to say it. Like on the advice of some people that you mm-hmm. know I trust and respect and stuff was like, I started listening to podcasts on like artificial intelligence and other stuff. Where I'm like, okay, I got to learn more about this because not only it may not be so important for me potentially, but maybe for my son and maybe that's something he gets in. So I, I want to know more about that, but I'm curious, where would you direct people to get more information on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and at least understand it, like from what we're talking about in terms of asking the right question and going through that middle ground where they're missing. That's, um, you know, that's, that's a great question. And I might, and I know that my answer is going to be coming from a, coming from the software engineer perspective who I, who I just kind of said maybe is a little too deep in the data, but uh, the place that I would, I always recommend um, budding analysts, scientists, and entrepreneurs to go is a place called Kaggle. And uh, Kaggle is uh, an online uh, resource for doing data analysis from, you know, open source data sets. But the reason that I provide that recommendation for your question is because they have competitions that are sponsored by companies. And um, those competitions usually ask meaningful business questions and they provide the data they think could answer them and they challenge uh, they challenge anyone, uh, a part of the community, which can be anyone and everyone, to come up with a unique way to solve them. And so some of the most uh, mindful and productive uh, engineers in this bridge space that I'm mentioning, the bridge between asking good questions and then 
understanding how to use the haystack of data to answer the questions. Some of the best and most thoughtful engineers have come from people who are really good in that space. Um, and let me give you a specific example. So uh, honestly, I think Kaggle uh, really got its start with the idea of the Netflix prize. Um, have you heard of the Netflix prize? It was, I think like 10 years ago. Remind me. Yeah, no worries. Um, the So the Netflix prize, I think, oh gosh, I'm going to get my year wrong, but it was like 2008, 2009-ish. And Netflix basically open sourced their data and they were looking for a new way to provide movie recommendations. And the long and short of it is that pain that you're clicking on right now as we're binge watching everything on Netflix since we have nothing better to do during COVID. Um, that recommendation pain of how to recommend new content to Netflix users uh, came out of the Netflix prize. It also sparked the need for resources like Kaggle where people are competing to be better at algorithms or better at using data to answer cool questions. And it also simultaneously was the rise of using graph structured data to do different things. Um, and and that, that mindset that they started really kicked off so many initiatives in the, in the data industry that are becoming core co cornerstones to the problems that we have. Can you spell Kaggle? Yeah, Kaggle, K-A-G-G-L-E. Okay, so I spelled that wrong in my paper. I'm glad I asked. No, it's okay, no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I only use one G, but that was my guess. But um, Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but I think that's relevant. I mean, again, for folks that are listening in that, whether they're, you know, again, trying some side hustle or doing, you know, a business they're in or they're deeper into it, whatever, I think it's important to step outside your comfort zone. And even if you learn surface level on a few things, it's better than knowing nothing at all. So I think even going to something like this, and I'm excited to check it out, even just yeah. to, again, from a business standpoint, maybe I grab some additional knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I think for some people who, who maybe go to Kaggle could um, potentially be very intimidated as to what's there. So I, I see at least two different levels of how your audience could learn from Kaggle. Um, I feel like the entrepreneurs and the business-minded individuals uh, can learn from, from Kaggle by looking at what some of the cutting-edge uh, cutting companies are doing to ask good questions and to use the data to answer those questions. Um, so when you kind of are browsing through Kaggle and their competitions, you can start to get an idea of the analytics that are uh, that are more innovative, that companies are wanting to open source to the creative community to solve. Um, and you know, you'll you'll see things like link prediction from Facebook, um, and you're like, well, what, what, why would we want to do link prediction? And honestly, link prediction from Facebook uh, on Kaggle was about uh, finding a new way to recommend connections for you on social media. And so they provided the friends list, like we were talking about with the spreadsheet example of friends of friends of friends. They provided that type of data for you to find a way to predict uh, who you're most likely to connect with on that platform. And so that, that gives you an idea of the types of questions that innovative businesses are asking. And if you're on the other end and maybe you're a software engineer or you're a data analyst or someone who wants to get, get their hands on the data, there is a, you know, there's a plethora of notebooks and tutorials on how to uh, kind of step through writing, uh, you know, writing some code to get started with using data to answer the bigger power, the bigger questions. So I feel like it's good on both sides. Okay. And what you're talking about with Facebook, um, and maybe it's a Netflix example, but you know, something as I was uh, preparing for this, you talked about, you know, something you coined this, this social fingerprinting. Is that yes. what you're talking about? Um, it is, is a, it part, a little different. It's, it's a little bit different. Um, and, uh, and to be honest, it is very controversial. 
happy okay. to talk about it. Uh, oh, great. So, but, let's, let's dive in. <laughs> uh, so social fingerprinting is the ability to identify you according to the data uh, that you put out there on your cell phone. And uh, that already is like, whoa, what kind of data are you looking at? Um, you can uniquely identify any individual in the world solely based on who they talked to. Um, so I, you, have you ever heard that phrase, the age old phrase of you are who your friends are? Mm, no, again, maybe I just, probably, maybe I, just that, uh, I don't remember it now. <laughs> maybe that was something that, uh, my family, you know, beat into my head, trying to convince me to hang out with better people. <laughs> you are who your friends are. Anyways. Um, essentially social fingerprinting proved with data that, uh, that phrase, uh, that you, your identity is tied to who your friends are when you're using your phone. Uh, so back, uh, back when I was doing this research, uh, you know, about six years ago or so, um, we had, uh, we had the lists of who anonymized, by the way, this is not real cell phone numbers, but this is anonymized, but it was a, the real telecommunication networks for, for large countries. We were looking at for an individual cell phone, uh, anonymized cell phone number, who they called and who they texted. So this is not what you said during the call. And it's absolutely not, was con not what was contained in the text message, text message. It was just the relationship of who you contacted. And the other dimension that we had, or the other way we wanted to understand that data was uh, how that changed over time. And social fingerprinting ended up demonstrating that uh, within a two-week window, um, I mean, even Brian, think about it, over the past two weeks, how many different people have you called or texted on your cell phone? Right. Yeah. A um, lot. A lot. Six is all it takes to make you look different from anyone else in the world. And uh, that within a two-week window uh, is essentially what uh, social fingerprinting proved uh, for the research I was working on. Do Creepy? Watch, Are you freaked out yet? <laughs> sort of. Well, you know what it reminds me of? Do you watch the uh, TV show uh, Westworld? I do watch Westworld. Okay. So again, <laughs> folks can fast forward this if they don't, because they're probably like, what the hell is Westworld? No, I think it's a phenomenal show. I mean, you got to think through it. But what just came up, now don't spoil it. I haven't watched the last two episodes, but earlier in this season three, mm -hmm. they, they were talking about where, you know, th this whole, obviously, well, the data was stored, where they almost are predicting and making your decisions like they can they can predict your future just because they know the decisions you're gonna make that's a little bit more probably way in the future but to your point like you probably can make a lot of assumptions about what people are doing how they're going to do it based on the data you have on them would, would that be a believable statement absolutely and um and that's why to your question earlier brian about is is too much data a problem um whenever you're trying to understand what data is out there about you and what companies are doing with your data. Too much data is how you mess up their algorithms. Um, and, and to your point about predicting behavior, uh, you can think about what you're tracking on your cell phone every day. Like for example, let's pretend that you use your cell phone as an alarm clock every morning. Um, and so now there's a behavior that you're probably training on your phone for setting your alarm clock and maybe you're the kind of person who, as soon as you take your, you know, uh, as soon as you turn off your alarm clock, you check your email. So a hundred days in a row, you're going to check your email on your phone right after your alarm clock goes off. And that's a behavior now that your cell phone provider can predict about you. Your alarm clock is going to go off in a generally early hour of the morning. And the, the next application you're going to open is your email provider. 
that's information that they can use with like 99% accuracy to understand your behaviors uh, according to what you're doing on your cell phone. Um, and Westworld essentially takes that to an extreme level uh, by providing that ability to to model out your behaviors in any type of world, uh, any type of situation, and obviously provide a lot of very interesting ways that they are uh, put that in the television show. But it's really not that far off, um, and it's well the entire <laughs> the entire premise of having a full amusement park and what they're going off going with that's far off. But uh, the idea that we're generating enough data for um, a company to understand your next move, uh, that that's already happening today. Okay. You're freaked out now. <laughs> no, I'm not freaked out. It's just interesting. I mean, really, because at the end of the day, I mean, the, the idea now than it was even, you know, let's say 10 or 20 years ago is, you know, certainly we have freedoms, but the reality is we're not, I mean, we, you're, you're locked in because everyone has a phone. You're not getting rid of your phone. So you're kind of locked into like, I can't just go off the map. Now, maybe I can, I guess, but as long as I have my phone on me or I'm doing some sort of those activities, something's going to be tied to me, right? I mean, that that's what the freaky thing is. It is, it is. And and while, and I love talking about this uh, because it, it does breach so quickly into the idea of human privacy and freedom. Uh, at the end of the day, the way to combat this, in my opinion, is awareness and understanding of what you can do with this information. Uh, and so that's why I like to at least present how easy it is uh, to uniquely identify individuals from data um, and it, empower people to make their own decisions because, you know, you can choose to not use a phone. I understand that sounds like a very foreign idea to people these days, uh, but you can make that choice. Um, and and the types of effects that would have is the ability for uh, companies and people who have the access to your data to understand your behaviors or to understand your identity. And if you've got extreme concerns over that, then um, those are the types of devices you need to put down. If you, I'll put you on the spot here, and, and I don't uh, from a oh research standpoint, but <laughs> if, if you can't, obviously, l- let's assume no one's going to get rid of their phone. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Is there any recommendations or things you can do from a data standpoint to either not share your data with some of these platforms? Like, is it, hey, make sure you go into the security settings or make sure you do this or that? Is there certain things that you would recommend from that standpoint that just the average person should look out for? Yeah. And there's there's going to be, uh, yes, there's a ton of recommendations I could have. And those recommendations are going to essentially be on a spectrum of how worried you are. Um and on one extreme side of being very worried about the data that you are putting out there about your identity, um, I see two options. One is to not use tech at all. Okay, well, we're going to assume that's not an option. So um, if you are concerned about the, the data that you have on your cell phone, um, an easy way to evade the system is to uh, change your number and change your cell phone device um, very frequently, um, like every month that might not be an option for you. Um, but if you really are that concerned, uh, that is the way to evade some of these systems. Um, on the other side, uh, you might you might not be concerned at all about people being able to predict your identity and your behaviors. And then you're just wanting to know, well, how do I be more safe? Uh, and to me, that type of person uh, may want to under, make sure they understand, uh, you know, like secure Wi-Fi, uh, you know, never join Starbucks Wi-Fi and then check your bank account, for example. Um, there are extensions to put on Chrome that will essentially, you know, be able to read cookies when you're on unsecured Wi-Fi and access accounts. So uh, I think it's a, a best practice for anyone to always uh, be on secure Wi-Fi or to make sure that you're joined via VPN. 
and that you're practicing intelligent use of the uh, of the internet through basic security uh, items like that. You know what I started using recently is this uh, browser called Brave. You familiar okay. with it? I'm not familiar with Brave. It's a it's it's using blockchain. Um, okay. And it's interesting because it blocks like all these ads and everything like that. It's really interesting. I'd, I I think I heard it from, I can't remember how I came across it. Maybe, maybe it was Tim Ferriss. Uh, maybe it was something else. But anyways, okay. maybe some, I, I, you might like that just because, yeah, it takes away some of the the extremes, if you will, that maybe some other the browsers have or, or, you know, sharing of the data that may be involved with it. Yeah. Um, and what <laughs> what's, what's even more fun is... Uh, is the is the way to uh, use a Harry Potter inspired algorithm to still detect identity on blockchains? Uh, that's still possible. Oh, really? So it is, um, and it's uh, it, there's a really fun origin story in the tech world that kind of makes me chuckle. Uh, but there's a, a cast of open source contributors who created uh, created this tool called Mimblewimble. And yes, this is really a word we're using on your podcast right now. Um, but there, but there's a there's a, an approach in mathematics. Uh, that uses something called homomorphic encryption uh, that essentially lets you look at the blockchain, even though it's encrypted and still do math on it. And uh, it's still correlate back to identity. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a, it's a really deep and, and very nerdy community clearly. Uh, but it's a, it's an interesting way that from a data perspective uh, you really just need to understand what's out there about you, what it looks like and uh, what you can do with it. And, Yes, blockchains are going to be a very interesting way to solve, uh, you know, distributed public consensus, uh, like you're doing on the Bitcoin network or any other type of cryptocurrency network. Uh, but at the same time, it's still not a one-stop solution. I wanted to highlight, just because the word spotlight is in this, I wanted to highlight, Oh yeah, um, we were talking about earlier about the spotlight problem and something obviously data is infused in this and, and really a lot of people that are making decisions um, you know, in, in the kind of way I look at it is that confirmation bias, but, you know, we were talking about ADHD earlier and, but just how like nowadays things are, it's like when you see the problem more and more and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, this is the the worst thing yeah. in the world. But yet it, it may have been around for hundreds of years, but yeah. we just never identified it. Can you chat a little bit about, you know, what the spotlight problem is and, and we'll go into depth on that. Cause I think it could be helpful for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, Brian, great, great topic. So uh, in the world of data, uh, I love to talk about provenance, and I love to talk about um, you know different ways that people have confirmation bias. And the spotlight problem is one way to think about it. Um, so it, I like to I like to think about it like this. So imagine uh, you're walking. You know, it's very late night on a Friday night. We're talking like one or two in the morning, and there is someone who's had a lot, you know, a little too much to drink maybe, and you see them underneath a street light. And they're under that street light and you see them looking for something. So you approach them and you're like, ah, can I help you find something? And they tell you, well, hey, I lost my keys. And you're like, okay, so you spend a lot of time looking for your keys underneath this street lamp in the middle of the night. Um, and, you know, after a while you stop and say, well, did, where did you lose your keys? And they say, well, I don't know, but the light's on right here. And, and that's the spotlight problem. The spotlight problem is that you're searching for something because that is where the light is shining instead of understanding the bigger problem of, of really what could be the root cause of what you're trying to understand. And I, I see that a lot right now, especially with COVID um, and with the data that people are providing about the number of cases, the number of any correlation. I mean, my, my gosh, you go on the internet, go on Twitter, go on any, anywhere, and all they're talking about is the data sources related to the spread of COVID. 
And I do think that we have a little bit of a, a spotlight problem where we are looking at this data uh, because everyone's thinking about this problem right now, but uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to encourage the general public to take a step back um, and to look at the problem holistically, like the year-over-year trend in deaths related to pneumonia, deaths related to the flu, uh, and how those numbers are changing in this small window of time uh, for a new virus that we're looking at. Um, maybe also to understand uh, the actual uh, the actual death rates that are out there instead of you know localized numbers. It's it's a really big problem that PhDs in statistics are modeling. Yet decisions on public consensus are being made off of tweets. And I think that what's happening is is directly related to the spotlight problem that we were that you brought up. So that was it's a really great question. And part of it, I think, to that is is maybe this is a correlation or not, but it's really because it was so unknown for a period of time. And now, as you're saying, it's it's come around so quickly mm-hmm. that we want to assume certain things. Like we're, we're making a lot of assumptions. Now, mm-hmm. some of them I think are smart, right? I'm not going to go into the political side of anything, but yeah, like, yeah. I think being safe is smart mm-hmm. because we don't, we don't, what we don't know, we don't know. So it's almost like, okay, we got to use all the data we have and all the cases we have to make some, make something of it. Right. It's almost so that we could be comfortable at night and, and sleep. Yeah. well. You know, exactly. And I mean, every human's going to want to do that. There's um, it, this is a very high, uh, high, highly anxious time around the world. And we want answers and we want to we want to make decisions from what we have access to. But then that kind of brings up the second biggest problem with data and people who work with data um, on their day-to-day jobs, and that's the provenance of data. And uh, when I say provenance of data, I just mean that the numbers are what they say they are. And at the end of the day, I spend um, we spend our days when you work in data counting, and counting is hard. And I, I say that actually very, very honestly. Um, being able to count something and accurately say that this percentage of this thing really is uh, what you're what you're trying to look for uh, is a problem that you know tens of thousands of people around the world are trying to solve every day, and that's not even related to COVID. But but understanding that this piece of data really comes from the source that you think it comes from, that it hasn't been changed, um, and that uh, it was accurately classified at its beginning. That's what I mean when I say provenance and. Uh, it's it's not easy, and I think that the the spread of COVID around the world has highlighted a major issue with data provenance in healthcare in general, not just within this disease, but um, understanding the quality of how to collect data and derive meaningful correlations from it, especially in really messy data like healthcare, uh, is still an unsolved problem um, in no matter what country you're in. If I were to simplify that a little bit more for, for, yeah. for myself, really, but maybe for others listening, how can how can folks um, take more actionable steps to use data? And, I, and I'm thinking this more, I'm so big into health and wellness and those type of things, but on their day-to-day life, whether it's, you know, how they process information, I don't know if they have an Apple watch for their sleep or how they're, how they're like, you know, from a heart rate side, if they're working out or like, is there certain things you would encourage people to use data to their benefit and not just like, I, cause I think to your point, I'm going to go down a, a rabbit hole for a second. Go there. You're good. But, but like you mentioned something around, I see this a lot where someone reads one article or they do one, they read one study that was done with like 
10 people and it's like, oh my God, that's the, yep, 90% of whatever. I'm like, oh, wait a minute, hold on a second. Where's your source? How many? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious where for people looking at themselves in the mirror to improve day day in and day out, is there certain measures you would encourage them to take to use data properly in in, in order to improve their life? Yeah, Brian, that's a fantastic question. And the answer from, uh, in my opinion, um, you know, having worked in data for over a decade and it's my career, uh, my answer is to have awareness and to specifically have awareness on the difference between macro or um, micro economies when it comes to data. When I say macro economies, I'm talking about data or information that is on a much more global scale than just you as the individual, which is what I mean when I'm talking about micro economies or or kind of microscopes on data. Um, And the macro level of information, I feel like is what is uh, really hard to read right now because you take so much uh, anxious sentiment from what's happening or you, you, you read these headlines and you don't quite understand because there's not a real actionable way to understand how to use that information for you yourself with the data that you have uh, on your day-to-day basis. Uh, So I personally like to monitor trends at the global level, but make informed daily decisions on the more local or individual level. Uh, And to your point about having Apple watches, uh, you know, have have a, a way to monitor your own health uh, every day, be it your heart rate, be it, uh, you know, I'm a huge advocate for mental health. So be it that you are uh, tracking how, uh, how you feel every day or how you and those in your family are feeling every day and, and finding a way to make a, you know, just make a conscious effort to look at how this is influencing you on a day-to-day basis. It's going to be much more meaningful. Uh, it's going to really bring the locus of control and how to react in the situation, to, to actionable ways on things that you can do uh, instead of reading what's happening out there globally and honestly having no way to act on it. But if you read your sleep schedule every night and start to realize that you feel crummy on days that you only got four or five hours of sleep, that actually gives you an action on how to use data to improve your health. And uh, I, I think it's much, much better for us to use the situation that we're in globally to develop more uh, local practices or more daily practices to live a healthier life according to what's happening around you. I feel like we just skimmed the surface. I might have to have you back for a part two, if that's okay. I would be happy to come back. Because <laughs> I want to talk more about, I, I wouldn't even really get into your book, The Practitioner's Guide to Graph Data, because I, I yeah. want to talk about that a little bit. But for folks out there, and, and I'll link this up, we're, uh, who, who's who's that for? What, what type of individual should be reading that book? Because that's, yeah. that's a great accomplishment, obviously, for putting that together. I'm, I'm assuming there's some stuff that's awesome. And then for me, it's probably like, all right, I got to, I got to really get down deep into it because I, maybe I don't understand it. I don't know. Yeah. The, the book writing journey is a whole conversation uh, 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 full of stories and Easter eggs that are hidden throughout that text. And um, honestly, lifelong pranks we played on a friend in the book. Uh, it's all in there. Um, but uh, the book is for, uh, for two audiences and it's squarely for anyone uh, within uh, the tech industry or within uh, an industry that is, uh, you know, using software engineering or data to inform a decision in your business. Uh, so there's going to be content in the earlier chapters 
for business owners, uh, you know, coaches and managers in engineering or, or in business who are wanting to understand why you should care about relationships within data. And uh, we, you know, we essentially give a developer-focused uh, step-by-step tutorial on how to use relationships and data to make an informed decision. Uh, so we, you know, we go throughout the book and we start with where every company starts, which is the important question of, well, just tell me everything that I know in my system about my customer. Uh, you know, the legacy technologies for doing that are really hard and using graph structure data make it easier, faster, and simpler. And we, we go through some really cool ways that um, uh, people are using graph technology to, to monitor the power industry. So if you flip a, if you flip a, a light switch in the United States, you, you are using or contributing to graph technology. And we, you know, we actually bring up uh, Bitcoin and blockchain in one of our chapters to try and understand how much you trust people if you're going to be involved in the Bitcoin and blockchain community. And at the very end, we, uh, we actually walk through exactly how Netflix does uh, does that recommendation pain that we're all pain on your uh, on your app that we're all binging through these days? Uh, so it, it essentially it it takes that high level uh, way to ask good business questions and use relationships to answer them, and then it also uses uh, you know education for the developer for the engineer to teach them how to do it in code. Wonderful and. Uh- Obviously, putting the book together—that's awesome. Because I want to—I want to chat about that more. Maybe again, a part two to really yeah. talk about you know Anytime. authoring the book and, and going through the research and all that. And this has been highly, highly knowledgeable, especially for me. I'm hopeful for everyone else listening because again, I, I don't know the first thing about you know kind of data and how to look at it. So this is some great nuggets in here. I took away. I thank you very much for joining. This was was definitely a pleasure. Likewise, Brian, uh, I, I sure had a great time uh, getting to talk with you. You're asking you know, fantastic uh, different insights in the data industry. So give yourself a lot more credit. Well, thanks again to Denise for joining on this episode. Really appreciate the deep dive into data. And I know we just skimmed the surface um, on some of the topics that we could talk about. So We'll definitely have her back on for a part two. And I certainly appreciate y'all listening in. I'm grateful again for this opportunity to keep putting out these episodes and keep having people listen in and give the great feedback you are. Uh, Always look to connect with y'all further online. My website, brianandraco.com. There's even a 15-minute call dropdown under the contact form. I'd love to jump on a quick Zoom call and uh, learn more about each and every one of y'all. as well as uh, online, uh, Instagram or Twitter, at Brian Andreco, best way to get me there, on LinkedIn. And I just started um, kind of putting these videos online on YouTube. So if you want to watch this interview again or pass it to your friend or family member, you can do that on YouTube and you can actually have our the video as well included with it. So appreciate y'all listening in. Look forward to having you on another one. Hope you have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.